Welcome to today's episode of The Power of Reinvention. I'm Kathy Sharp Ross, and we're here to talk with my guests about the dreams, the visions, and the passions that individuals have every day and dare to explore them. Whether it's business or personal, you're entitled to live the life that you want, and no matter the circumstances, you have the power to create success, fulfill your dreams, and live with passion. That's what I'm talking about. So dare greatly and happy reinventing, folks. Let's do this. Welcome to today's reinvention. I am so excited for Ron Richard to be our guest today. I am going to read today from chapter three. Chapter three is the chapter, as you may remember, um, we've tapped into this before. It's one of my favorites called Hello, Are You Still In There? And because Ron has just such an incredible story, I should say chapters and reinventions in his life, but I feel like a lot of what he is doing in this point in time and has done is tapped into sort of the dreamer in him and in other people. And so I kind of really wanted to focus on that as a bit of our theme. So when one of my sons was younger, people always asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up. His eyes would light up like sparklers when he heard the question, and he'd answer with all the confidence of a five-year-old, a karate kid, a race car driver, a policeman, a power ranger, all at the very same time. His enthusiastic response was followed by colorful stories of the places he'd race, the bad guys he'd catch, and the planets he'd conquer and save. And we never once told him he couldn't do it. Later, he had grandiose ideas of products that he would invent. His imagination ran wild with possibility while he sat in the back of the car. Back then, his stories were full of joy and hope and confidence because those were the only things he knew. He hadn't yet encountered societal pressures. He didn't feel compelled to base his career on how much money he would make or on what others would think of him. He didn't even know what money was. I miss those days, not just for him, but for all of us. I miss when he couldn't wait to jump out of bed, the days I'd have to pry him away from his hot rod cars and Legos for meals and potty breaks. He was so lost in play that he literally forgot he was hungry or tired or cold. What made you leap out of bed or caused you to get lost for hours as a child? Do you remember? If we think hard enough, most of us probably name a dream we held on to back then that we never followed or dropped too quickly. Years passed and we had to triage our responsibilities. And when that happens, dreams are easily buried under a pile of laundry or bills or work-related activities or you name it. Reality gets in the way, but now it's time to clear the decks and get some clarity. The beauty of reinvention is that sometimes by revisiting our childhood dreams, we can find where we really we were really meant to be before real life in all its messy glory got in the way. Our earliest inclinations in life are good indicators of our strengths and ultimately the kind of work that brings us joy. While you might think that flying to the moon, becoming a rock star, or playing professional hockey are a little unrealistic at this point in your life, that's okay. Tailoring your dreams to fit your life right now, joining a garage band, 
signing up the regional hockey league or coaching a kid's team can go a long way toward creating the joy you've been looking for. I'm going to pause here because I feel like it's time to talk about the real thing with our guest, Ron Richard. So welcome, Ron. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure. You know, Ron and I had a conversation a couple of weeks back, almost a month ago, I think now, and we got to chatting about his very interesting background. I'm going to share a little of his bio, but then we're going to dig into the conversation. And I think that there's a lot here that we wouldn't have expected given his history and his past. But I think, Ron, you are such an example of what it means to really play with the things in your life that you're passionate about, to constantly be reinventing parts of your life, catalyst moments like you shared with me about the heart attack that you actually had this year and what that means and in evaluating, you know, where you are in in your life. So I'm going to start by sharing just a little bit of his background and then we're going to dig into some of these questions. So Ron's been employed in the medical industry for over 35 years and has extensive knowledge and experience in respiratory, pulmonary and pulmonary and sleep medicine. He began his medical career working in a respiratory department at a large teaching hospital in the Midwest. And upon leaving the medical center, he became involved in owning and operating home care companies, sleep laboratories, manufacturers, and distribution businesses. In addition to these experiences, he was instrumental in developing and designing several products used in the treatment and diagnosis of chronic health care conditions. Ron has launched over 40 major products, resulting in sales of over a billion dollars. He has held senior level positions at a number of companies in the area of sleep and respiratory care sectors. Ron has been awarded 15 patents and multiple industry awards due to his focus and dedication to improving healthcare outcomes. He also enjoys writing music and performing live concerts around the country and has played over 500 shows over the past 10 years. This one kind of stopped me dead in my tracks when I first read it. Because when you look at what I just shared with you, you don't really picture that part of Ron. But here he is. And this is, you know, this is my renaissance man. This is my poster child. This is the story I speak of so much when I speak of reinvention. We can be so many things for ourselves, to ourselves. And I'm really excited to dig into this conversation. So welcome, Ron. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Kat. So I got a question for you. With all that you have done, and we're going to dig into it a little more. When you were young, you know, teenager, and that that sort of age that my kid was that we were talking about, what was it that you were dreaming about doing with that this life of yours? Was there anything close to where you're at now? No, I think what you shared about your son, there was a lot of parallel things that I, I kind of looked at. And I grew up in a, a time in our country where there was a lot of uh, uh, turmoil and uh, I was somewhat a hippie, I guess. Oh, yeah. I lived in the Midwest, but I always had dreams of being a musician and touring and being in a band. And uh, when Woodstock, uh, you know, happened, that was something that I really tried hard to, you know, get out to and see with some friends of mine. But unfortunately, uh, I didn't make it. But uh, yeah, it was it, uh, that was the genre that you were in at that point in your life. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so uh 
you know, from there, it just was one of these journeys or things where I kind of took a look at a lot of different opportunities in life like people do and tried different things. And some, some things worked and some things didn't. But one of the things that I learned over uh, my life and I think that I can share is, you know, don't be afraid to fail. You know, and that's how, you know, reinventing yourself is a big part of that is, you know, don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to try you know, new things or different things. So that that sounds good in theory, but not for everybody. And certainly there are moments where you were reinventing some piece of your life or taking on a new venture or project. What was it that enabled you to get over that sort of fear of failure or question whether the risk or reward was going to outweigh the risk? But we know that, you know, like we can tell ourselves that, but physically there's a sense of panic or paralysis that tends to set in, you know, the old saying analysis causes paralysis and we can sort of have all these excuses for why we're not going to and failure typically is, is one of those areas that we fear. So was there something in some of those moments or any one of those moments that helped you recognize how to get, how to move through that? Yeah, I think I shared with you, I think what prepared me for, uh, I, I call it raising my hand almost for every opportunity that, you know, I came I across that. was my dad was in the Air Force and we moved uh, probably, I lived at 18 different Air Force bases. Wow. And I would oftentimes go to school and be in a school system for six months and then have to move, make all new friends, you know, figure out a whole new city, bus routes, whatever you know, where to, where to walk to, where to play and things like that. So that kind of got me over the hump of, uh, uh, the fear of failure. I think that, that really helped me kind of adjust really quickly to a lot of different environments and opportunities. Yeah. I think we're kindred spirits in that way. I moved around a lot as a kid, not, I don't think as much as you did by the sound of it. I thought it was a lot, but now I'm like, well, my story pales, but I was sort of always, I felt like the new kid on the playground all the time. And I was like, had to have this like, hi, I'm Kathy. I'm the new kid. Will you be my friend? Can I have lunch with you? (laughs) You just had to put yourself out there. And some of us can do it. Some of us cannot. But it sounds like that served you well in life because that overcoming that moment and just going for it really served you well. And you know, I'm curious, um, the musician in you, did that start as a, at a young age, but you, someone sort of said, well, music is good, but you're not going to make a living that way. Go do something serious. Or how did the music and the medical field play in at what times in your life, which came first? Well, music for me started, my dad said we were moving to Fort Worth, Texas. So when we relocated there from, uh, I think we were in West Virginia, uh, I was singing in church and somebody heard me sing and they said, they talked to my parents and said, I think your son should try out for the Texas Voice Choir. And I, at the time, I think I was nine years old. I'd never sung in a choir or anything like that. So I went to a, uh, uh, an audition basically and was accepted into the, into the choir and we did mostly Broadway musicals. So that was my first real experience and I was with them for two years and we toured all around Texas. So that was uh, a lot of fun. That's amazing. And was there this desire to get into the medical field and medical space from a very early age? I mean, was that something that you went into such a specific 
area, the respiratory care kind of category, which I think we've probably all heard more about ventilators and respiratory care in the last two years than most of us would have otherwise have heard of, unfortunately. Um, but for you, this has been a part of your world. And I know that you made some incredible contributions in this space. So share with us a little bit about that sort of journey for you. It was purely by accident. A friend of mine that I worked with actually at another company or business, it was a construction company, had taken a job at a hospital and he'd been working there for about a year and we were uh, having lunch or something one, one weekend and he said, hey, you know, I'm doing respiratory therapy at this hospital. If you're interested, we're, we're uh, looking for, you know, people to, to work in that department. And so... I went and met with him and the director of the department, uh, met with the medical director, went through an interview process and essentially started out kind of in a residency uh, component to the, the whole program and then went through all the training and uh, became registered over a couple of years and ended up having, uh, you know, a really interesting career in the hospital. So that's how I kind of got started. And you know, worked in the ICU, worked in the emergency room. I worked in all, almost every different part of the hospital doing respiratory care. And um, got a really, that's actually where I started inventing products too. That's My what first, I was going to say. That's yeah. what I remember you saying, that that was really one of your first areas. And so this this ability to invent something. So let's talk about getting your ideas out of the coffee cup and into the real world. What on earth? gave you the idea, the gumption, um, you know, to, to think that you could create something new that didn't exist in the medical field. And how did you go about that? I mean, everybody wants to invent something, you know, whether you're, you know, my, my three-year-old in the back of the car, he was then, or as adults and all these brilliant ideas that we have, like, oh, I've got a, I've got a problem to solve for. Yeah, being a respiratory therapist, you get to see, you know, a lot of different patients in different conditions. And oftentimes you mentioned ventilators. When people are on ventilators, they lose the ability to communicate or to speak because they have a tube stuck down their throat. Right. And it's very frustrating for them to try to talk to uh, the staff or to their family when they would come and visit. So that's where I saw there, there's, a, there's a basic fundamental problem when you lose your ability to speak. So I created a communication board that would allow and enable patients to easily get the most oftentimes things they were asking for. And that ended up selling. I sold, I think, after I sold 100,000 units, I basically stopped keeping track. But yeah, I licensed that to a company and ended up uh, selling it. But in my book, I actually talk about if, if you see a, a need, plant a seed. And what that means essentially is if you see a problem, you know, don't ignore it. There's probably something you can do as a clinician to improve the quality of life or improve uh, health care. Uh, but you first have to take that step of understanding what is the problem and, it, you know, doing some analysis. That project took me about six months and I probably interviewed well over 200 patients after they came off the ventilator. And a lot of the questions I, I asked them and the answers that I got went into what the communication board was, you know, comprised of. Amazing. So it's, you know, it's been an amazing journey for you. I know that this year you experienced a heart attack and I'm sorry, and I'm glad to see you in great health. 
Um, but that was kind of a reinvention moment for you as well. So what what was sort of the catalyst there for you or what, or what did it actually, you know, trigger for you? Yeah, well, it, it is a weird thing. It just I had what's called a widow maker and uh, that's a heart attack. But essentially I had 100% blockage of my left anterior descending artery. And I was on a golf course playing golf with my son up in uh, near Carson City. Uh, he lived in he lived in Lake Tahoe, but we're on the 17th hole, and all of a sudden I started feeling uh, my jaw started hurting. My left arm is classic symptoms of a heart attack, and I told my you know I told my son I'm not feeling well. And uh, do you know CPR? And he goes what are you talking about? Oh, no. Oh, no. And, I, and he says, no, I don't. And I said, well, I think we need to start going out to the car and, you know, start heading into, into town into Carson City. We made it a, probably about 10 minutes, and I told him to pull over and basically call 911, and then an ambulance came to the gas station parking lot where we were and picked me up, put me in the ambulance and took me to the hospital. And luckily, they had an excellent uh, cardiologist there who put a stent into my uh, LAD and got me going, you know, again, but I actually went into full cardiac arrest right after they put the stent in. I had to be cardioverted three times and uh, put in the ICU, but I ended up surviving and I'm doing, doing a, a lot better now. But what it did for me is it actually was an awakening, you know, seeing patients firsthand in the hospital that had had heart attacks and yeah. kind of what had happened to them post heart attack. And, uh, you know, what they had been through for me, what it did was um, kind of re reexamine, you know, how am I, how am I going to spend my time between now and, you know, that that event to where I finally do leave this earth. And uh, a big part of that is going to be, you know, focusing on the, the inventions that I'm currently working on and continue to do the work I'm doing for uh, charities and things like that associated with ALS and, uh, you know, COPD and that type of thing. Right. So some of these inventions, um, are these things that we will ever see or is it really more related to, um, you know, you, you've had a pro profound impact, you know, 40 major products and the billion dollars in sales that have been generated through things that you've invented. Are the things that you're focused on now, are these things that we, the layperson, kind of would see, or are these things really behind the scenes in the medical field and profession? And if someone's looking to get that idea out of their coffee cup and, you know, it's all very well and good to have a great idea, but how do you get off square one? Where do you go? What do you have to do? What is the process? What is the journey? What can one expect? Um, you know, if there are 40 that are out there, how many did you, others, did you try to launch? There must've been hundreds of other ideas, but 40 have successfully been born into the world. So when one wants to do that, what does that require? Yeah, well, that's a big part of my book. It's actually like a blueprint to help uh, clinicians, but I've actually had people call me or contact me that are doing, um, products in, in a lot of different sectors or industries, not just the medical field. And as I told you, basically the impetus behind the book and the catalyst was I got invited to do a talk at Stanford, uh, primarily for physicians um, that have ideas that they want to get on the market, but they don't know how to get started. And I actually took the subtitle of the book from a doctor 
after I did the talk and he says, I've got so many great ideas, but I can't get them out of my coffee cup. You know, and he was kind of like one of these in your face kind of guys and you got to help me get, you know, my ideas out. And so there is, you know, I think firsthand, a lot of clinicians, particularly nowadays, post COVID or when we're going through COVID that can come up with tremendous ideas, but the, the first step is, you know, getting them on a piece of paper, writing it out. And that's kind of what my book is a step-by-step kind of um, a plan to take. So, uh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. It, it's, it, it's, I call it concept commercialization. And as you and I talk, doctors don't go to medical school and get trained in how to have a business or how to be an entrepreneur or how to launch medical products. But they are the best, you know, not just doctors, but respiratory therapists, sleep techs. And there's a whole myriad of uh, nurses and so on and so forth that have firsthand experience with products that they can see. If this product only did X, Y, and Z, it sure would do a lot better job of taking care of my patients than what I'm currently working with. So I go back to my example of my communication board. I saw a problem and then I created a solution. And that's pretty much how I see a lot of uh, inventors, particularly in the medical field, uh, kind of take their, their idea, their concept and get it to market. Right. But, you know, the, as I was telling you too, you know, the part about the book that's helpful, I guess, and I had a doctor call me a couple months ago after he'd read it, and he said, this really helped me accelerate getting my project or my product to market a little bit sooner and probably save me money and time. Right. Because I have a, I have a theory in my book, I call it the 4-2 or the 2-4 theory. Things take four times longer and cost twice as much, or they cost two times as much and take four times longer. But, you know, the fact is, is it's kind of like a Pareto. You know, you look at an 80-20 rule and you kind of, you know, factor that into this. And what I'm, what I'm trying to say is essentially the reason a lot of projects fail anymore in the medical industry is they're woefully underfunded. And there's, there's this, this time element now that's you have to deal with the FDA, you've got to deal with funding, you've got to deal with so many different aspects. And doctors or clinicians just aren't used to that. And they, they a lot of times don't have the patience for it. Right, right. Anyway, I'm sorry, Kathy, what were you going to... No, 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 it's it's all relevant. And I, I just have so many questions around the process because I think, you know, I've launched a lot of companies. I've worked with a lot of startups. We've built and brought products into the world in my life over the last 30 plus years. Um, so, you know, I've dealt with fashion and luxury and consumer electronics and all kinds of fun stuff, um, in that space. So I'm somewhat familiar with the journey and what it takes and everything from having mentors or the funding. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, I'd love to invent this product, but I don't have a slush fund sitting around to invest into lawyers and trademarks and patents, um, you know, all of those things, what does one do when they don't have those resources and yet they, they really feel passionate about, you know, bringing something new into this world? How do you go about that? Where do you go? Yeah, well, it's my example of the seed. You know, if you see that need, plant the seed. Well, seeds don't grow without fertilizer. And for in, in the, my industry, money is a fertilizer and you have to have lots of it anymore. You know, a basic medical project uh, can cost anywhere just for getting it kind of to a prototype phase, getting through clinical trials. It can cost five to ten million dollars. 
uh, to really get a, a, right now I'm in the process of launching a new high flow therapy device to treat COVID mm-hmm. and treat COPD wow. in the hospital. Wow. We've spent probably almost $10 million and we're just getting to commercialization and exactly. we still need another 10 million to build out inventory. So it's kind of like what you're talking about and what you've gone through, I think. Right. So, so in that case, I mean, this obviously there's a sense of urgency around anything that's going to help with COVID patients. Um, so, are there go-to funding sources? Are do you, are you have you been able to sort of over the years connect with a network of people who really support, especially in the medical field, um, certain areas and devices? Are they you know are people going to private equity firms? Where, what is the source of funding that tends to support these types of initiatives? If, if you don't have a track record and you haven't launched products, the best way to start out with um, is in my book, it kind of talks about the different tiers or levels of where you can find funding. You start with family and friends and uh, it kind of goes from there. And as you uh, kind of work your way through the ecosystem, you can go into venture capital type money, private equity is a lot further down the road. Typically when you've commercialized something, you've got 10, 15, $20 million in sales. And then from there you can do reg D kinds of, um, you know, uh, launches and and raise money that way, or you can, you know, essentially you can move towards an IPO uh, ultimately. So uh, I think for people that are starting out anymore though, they're, they're, probably best to, to talk to family and friends and people that know them and believe in them. Yeah, which is which is a wonderful way to at least get that angel investor money to take, right. give you some runway for the first six months or the development or the year that you're taking to try to really put the research and all the R&D into what you're doing. Um, have mentors played a big role in your life? Are there people younger, older, you know, peers, you know, what, what's that network like for you in this field and, and the space you've been in and doing all that you've done? Yeah, absolutely. I can remember probably about 20 years ago, I worked with a, a gentleman from Australia who um, was a CEO of a company and mentored me and saw, you know, basically some skill sets that I had and gave me a lot of great opportunities to grow and uh, learn and uh, do patents and invent things that I really never thought I'd get a chance to do, but he trusted in me and believed in me and gave me those opportunities. So you you kind of have to, when that window opens or that door opens, I encourage people go for it and take yeah. advantage of if <laughs> Can you say that again that. very loud and very <laughs> clear because... That is it. It's interesting. I just actually launched um, one of my new blogs, which we just, you know, put onto the website in the blog section on reinventionexchange.com is about doors and what they mean in our life. And some people see a door and they kind of stand on this side of it and they go, hmm, what would it be like if I walked through that door? And there's a lot of fear. Others like myself see the door and they're like, oh my God, I'm going to run through that door and I can't wait to find out what's on the other side of it. And, you know, it's a great metaphor for the way a lot of us live our lives and whether we're ready to take that leap, you know, go through that doorway and find out what's on the other side and and what we're going to learn and grow from. So I love that you shared that. Um, 
the music part, I'm going to kind of go back to that part of, of you and, you know, where is that fitting into your life at the moment? You know, having done what 500 gigs over the last 10 years, that's a lot of time. What's your instrument of choice? I don't think we covered that. Yeah, I well, so I play, uh, I, I play multiple different instruments. I play harmonic. I do a lot of studio work and I play blues, jazz, uh, country, just crossover stuff. So harmonica, I play sax, flute, and uh, wow. percussion. Um, so that's so, interesting because you deal in the respiratory world, and those are like very respiratory <laughs> instruments. That, that's an incredible connection. I'm sure you've made that, but I, I did not know that. So I, I love that that's – you probably have a great appreciation, even more so on a personal level, for how valuable – that breath and our respiratory systems are because that that also is the life of your music that you create. Just fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love that. Well, That's and what, what really fascinated, I guess, me about you was the uh, the Quincy Jones connection that, that I, you, and I, you and I have. Well, share it, please, because I know it, but share with our, our audience. Yeah, sure. So I did a show up in Seattle um, and one of the musicians, actually, two. One one of the musicians was a keyboard player from the the Dead End Company, and then the stand there was stand up bass player who was actually a physician at uh, Stanford, a sleep physician, and he brought up a guest artist named Ernestine Anderson, who used to perform and play with Quincy Jones and uh, had recorded on some of his projects. So after the gig was over, I got to talking to the, the bass player and he kind of told me his connection and link with Stan Getz, Quincy Jones and all these musicians. And then Amazing. later in the, a few months later, invited me to play at Stanford with uh, uh, some of the guys from the Grateful Dead. So wow. anyway, long story short is him and I, we played music together for practically, he just passed away last year. Right. We played several shows in probably, uh, gosh, we played in multiple different cities, but he just had such a rich background. But the funny thing is he, he always had this saying, I'd rather be a mediocre physician than a mediocre musician, because being a musician actually meant so much to him. And here's a guy who his name's William Dement. If you look up his last name, it's D-E-M-E-N-T. And he, I, I'm actually mentioned in, in a few of his books in our relationship that we developed over the years. But he actually discovered REM sleep. He discovered, I think, wow. narcolepsy and a bunch of other things. So uh, he's an amazing man. Amazing. Oh, that's incredible. No, I love that connection. I mean, you know, Quincy Jones has touched a lot of people's lives, but to see this little crossroads of ours here is pretty cool. I just love that. Have you had to make a lot of big changes in your life? focusing on the different things that you're doing? Has it been a point where you questioned what you were working on or the impact it was having, good, bad, or otherwise, on your lifestyle, your family, where you were living? Have you sort of had things that, that this has sort of had an impact on? Yes. Uh, actually, it, it, it had positive and negatives. I, I've worked all over the world. I've lived in Switzerland. I lived in, mm. in France for a while. I lived in Australia, in Japan, uh, Germany. Um, so I've traveled all over and I brought my family with me to a number of different places. But 
yeah, it, it took its toll on me, you know, traveling and being in all kinds of different time zones and not just that, but when I'm back here in San Diego, I'm constantly working with people all over the world on projects. So it's, there's a lot of time zone kind of things, but yeah. uh, you asked me something earlier, you know, I've launched now well over 55 products and in the process of launching, I think another big game changer product product here yeah. this year. But probably out of the 55 I've launched, I probably launched around 30 that have been bombs. <laughs> they literally uh, either had software, hard, I've, I've experienced every probably failure or issue you could ever ever experience with a medical project in, in anybody's life. So wow. yeah, I've had a lot of setbacks and uh, things that were, we thought they were gonna be a great idea, but when you really got into the weeds with it and started realizing uh, the uh, either the hands-on capability of it working with the clinician just didn't quite mesh mesh yeah. up, or it was something to do with the patient yeah. trials or one thing or another. But yeah, I, I've had some real bombs. That's got to be hard, I would imagine. I mean, that you know that that impact that that can have on all of us. You know, when you get those setbacks, and they happen. I mean, whether we're dreaming of, you know planting a vegetable garden or inventing someone that is going to something that's going to save lives. Like when we pour our heart and soul into something and we, you know, truly want to create or change somebody's lives, if not our own, and we have setbacks, it's really hard to regroup and soldier on. And that is, you know, something that comes with practice or that comes with just a passion and a desire to overcome something and grow from it and learn from it. And we do, we learn, we grow, we pivot, we sort of take that winding road sometimes, but it's so important for us. And I just, I love what you've done. And I was so enamored when we first spoke with each other at your passion and your dedication to doing work that has truly affected and impacted people's lives from a physical product standpoint, but the role model that you are, the book that you have shared with us, which is called Some Some Someday Is Today, Get Your Ideas Out of the Coffee Cup. And that's on Amazon. It came out in January, right? If I remember correctly. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for those who are looking to dig deeper into this part of the conversation and really get to know what Ron has done, you know, in, in a much deeper way, by all means, be sure to take a look and pick up a copy of his book. It's super exciting. I do have a fun question to ask you, which I think given the realm of what you've been doing with your life, should be an interesting answer. Um, if you were to have a dinner party and could have anybody sitting at your table, three or four great people dead or alive today, um, that you could have a glass of wine and break bread with, who might those people be? Well, one of them would be Stephen Hawking. Uh, I, I, I have, I have uh, been thinking about him the entire time we've been talking. Yeah, and I had I had the pleasure of actually working on a project with him, uh, a communication device. You know, this goes wow. way back to my days in the hospital, but uh, I helped develop some eyeglasses that he could actually type with and by blinking and moving his eyes. Oh my god! Which ended up getting sold to Google, but um, I was going to say that I, sounds like the Google—I forget what they called them—but the Google glasses that they had. Yeah, it's yeah. something similar, but something little, like that. More wow. Advanced. Wow. So I, I got to meet him on a like a video call, but I never got to meet him in person. And I 
I wish I could have had lunch with him. The other person would be Walter Cronkite. Mm. I always was fascinated with his life. And uh, probably the third person who I have met, but I've never had lunch with, is Mick Fleetwood, who's the drummer for Fleetwood Mac. Wow. Love that. That's a great combination and no surprise, like I said, because of the range of your life. Um, we, I have a little Walter Cronkite story, if I may. Um, I guess I can because it's my show, right? I get to say whatever I want. <laughs> but it's all about you right now, but just a fun kind of, you know, under the heading of, you know, our paths crossing. I worked on a show many, many years ago called Liberty's Kids. It was a show on PBS. It was an animated series about the story of America. And every chapter of your history book from 11th grade is sort of a Chad, the Boston Tea Party, crossing the Delaware, Washington, you know, the general. And it was an animation company that produced this amazing show. And every one of these historical characters were voiced by a very famous celebrity, Michael Douglas, Katie Couric, Whoopi Goldberg, um, oh, the list goes on, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Everybody played a role doing the voiceover of these characters, but the stories were told through the eyes of two young people working as an apprentice in Benjamin Franklin's print shop, which you can appreciate being the inventor that he was. And Walter Cronkite played the voice of Ben Franklin. Oh, wow. That's... So I got to actually work very closely with Walter Frank, uh, Walter Cronkite's entire team. And through the process of the recording and getting him in studio and getting him scripts and getting him, you know, storylines and all of that. So there's our little brush again with Faith. Have a beautiful week and happy reinventing, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Power of Reinvention. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Wouldn't mind a five-star review. It would be greatly appreciated. Also, be sure to visit thereinventionexchange.com to share your reinvention stories, suggest a guest, join the newsletter mailing list, get access to my book, which is called Reinvent Your Life, What Are You Waiting For?, and discover fantastic bonus content with my blogs, and listen in to the Reinvention Virtual Chat series. Don't forget to join me next week for another episode. Please share with a friend and thank you for listening. Happy reinventing.